0: All right, Isaiah chapter 9 is where we are this morning. I was reflecting on uh, this Christmas, and uh, I think by my count, this is my 17th Christmas uh, here at the church, 17th year writing Christmas sermons and Christmas Eve sermons. And, and again this year, as in all the previous years, I find myself wrestling with what I'll call the contradiction of Christmas. I bump into it every year, and this year is no different. Here's the contradiction. On the one hand, we're celebrating the warmth and the light and all of the good, warm, fuzziness of Christmas, and we're thinking about peace on earth and goodwill toward men, and, and you know I'm writing messages that highlight that. And, and yet, we continue to live in a world year after year that is full of war on earth and ill will between people and darkness and lots of things that, that just don't seem to match with the message of Christmas. Um, just take this year. We think of the, I think this morning of the, the families in Pakistan who've lost children in the senseless slaughter there this last week in, in the school. Or we think of uh, Russia and Ukraine and, and the tensions there and you know, that's, a, that's a pressure cooker. You know, what's going to happen there to those people? I mean, could you imagine living in that kind of tension uh, between those two nations, and then, you know, the Russian rubles dropping, and oil prices are plummeting, does that mean Russia's going to do something desperate? I mean, it's it's scary. You wonder what's going to happen. Or you look at our own nation, and there's uh, politics as usual, as nasty and as polarized as ever, as vociferous as ever. Um, or, or you think about the recent events in Ferguson, or New York City, or just... What just happened yesterday, this, uh, what appears to be a retaliatory murder of two police officers. And, and regardless of what you think about those events, and regardless of, of what you think a grand jury should or shouldn't have done or whatever, I, I think we can all step back and just say, where is it going to stop? You know, when, when will there be healing? I, I thought we were past these things. Aren't we healed as a nation? And yet the distrust and the, the suspicions and the recriminations continue and so we look to our leaders, and we say, well, maybe our leaders will help us. Maybe our leaders will dig us out of this. And we look to local leaders and national leaders and international leaders, and, and too often we're just discouraged by what we see. We're disillusioned. Sometimes we're flat-out disgusted. And, and we say, wow, sometimes you guys are more part of the problem than you are part of the solution. And we wonder, is anything ever going to change? So, so that's the, the world in which we live, and then you have Christmas, and, you know, how do you put these together? Maybe the way to solve this contradiction is just to say, you know, Christmas is really isn't that real. And maybe Christmas is just kind of for kids. Maybe it's, it's just sort of a happy time of year and we enjoy it, but it really doesn't mean anything. It's not the real world. Maybe Marx was right. Maybe religion is the opiate of the masses. And uh, Christmas is just our favorite pill that we all like to take together to make us feel like it's all okay. That's one way to deal with the contradiction is to kind of to, to sort of disbelieve in Christmas and to, and to kind of say, well, it's not, it's not real. It's not real life. Realistic people don't actually buy into all that. That's one option. The only other option, as I can see it, is, is to actually go the other direction and press deeper into Christmas than we typically ever do. To, to actually go deeper beneath the surface to find the true significance of it. And when I say deeper, I mean more than just saying, hey, Christmas is about Jesus. It's more than just a bumper sticker on your car that says, Jesus is the reason for the season, or keep Christ in Christmas. I mean, yeah, but there's something more than that. In other words, okay, it's about the birth of Jesus, but so what? What does that mean? And often we don't go much past the kind of, you know, Happy holidays. No, no, Merry Christmas. I showed them. You know, like, that's not getting at the meaning of Christmas. We've, We've got to go deeper. Why does it matter that Christ was born? And how is that really an answer for anything in this totally messed up world where we try to do our best, but things just continue? So we come this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy the Old Testament, written 700 years or so before the birth of Jesus, and it's about the coming of this one, this Messiah. And in this, we not only have an announcement of the birth of Jesus, but we have really, I think, the deeper meaning and significance of it. So let me read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, familiar verses for some of us, some of the lines you've heard before, and yet I think hopefully will help us to see this time of year in a different light. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's a beautiful prophecy, um, powerful words, great poetry. But the thing you may not know about this passage is that it's also very historically situated. That, That this passage was, this prophecy was given in a very specific time under specific circumstances. Circumstances that frankly are very much like today in the brokenness and, and uh, confusion and conflict of our world. Um, Isaiah chapter 9 was delivered sometime around-ish, like 730 B.C. It was a very specific time in a specific place. And, and things were happening at that time. And so like, what I'd like to do is just briefly tell you the, the historical background of this, because I think it really makes the passage come alive and then we'll talk about its meaning for us. But like I said, this prophecy was given uh, in, in the, uh, the late 8th century B.C., about 730 B.C. And actually, I'll, I'll show you with a map, but I'll have uh, our, our people here put a map up on the wall, if you guys in the next slide. Have a, I don't usually preach with slides, but, uh, you know, and look, I even have a pointer, you know. So I'm going to get super professorial here. You'll see here on the map of Israel. So um, anyway. This is, uh, this is a map of ancient Israel in, in the 8th century B.C. Some of the key players here. This, uh, so you have the Israelites, but at this time they were divided into two nations. So there was the northern ten tribes who were called Israel, and the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin called Judah with Jerusalem. And uh, so already, there you go, they're already in a civil war. God's one people are already divided. That's just how it is, right? People who should be together are already divided and, uh, and up here is another nation called uh, Syria or the Arameans. And, and there's another nation that comes into play at this time that you can't see on this map because they're so far away. You probably heard of them. Maybe you remember them from world civilization class in high school or college. They were called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were, they were a monster superpower in their day who were aggressive, brutal, violent, oppressive. And the Assyrians would be like, you know, like, woo, like way over there somewhere uh, They'd be like northern Iraq was is sort of where they would be today. And, and the Assyrians were uh, flexing their muscles and just taking over the Fertile Crescent. And in and, and 735, 734 BC began making incursions down into uh, the land of Israel. So uh, the the Israelites, uh, the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Aram, they said, you know, let's make an alliance. How about we, we form up a, a team and that way when the Assyrians come, we'll stand, you know, just power and strengthen numbers. And and they said, great. So they went down to Judah, who was ruled by a king named Ahaz, and they said to Ahaz, why don't you join our alliance? And the prophet Isaiah came to Ahaz, and the prophet Isaiah said, don't join the alliance. Trust God. Don't don't put your trust in nations. Israel, they've gone off the rails. They're worshiping idols. You can't trust them. And Aram, they're they're pagans. You can't make an alliance with these people. Trust God. God. Don't trust the nations. And and Ahaz, in in a moment of faith, which was unique for him, trusted God. He said, we're not going to do it. And so, well, that made the Israelites and the Arameans say, okay, well, we can't have a fight from the north and the south at the same time. So they gathered forces and they attacked Judah. And they didn't overcome Judah. They didn't sack Jerusalem, but they inflicted some heavy losses And uh, and Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, trust God, trust God, it's bad, but God's going to do this, just trust God, this is what the Lord says. And finally, Ahaz's momentary faith gave out, and instead of trusting God at that point, he actually sent a delegation to Assyria and said, hey, I'll be your boy if you protect me. And and so he made a deal with the devil and joined the Assyrians. And so then the Assyrians came down and (laughs) wiped out Aram. And took the northern part of Israel. They, they came into about right here and, and annexed this. And to the, so the actual Assyrian Empire was now down into the Promised Land. There was just a little bit of Israel that was left as kind of a, you know, a little token gesture state. Uh, and by 732 BC, it was it was a disaster. And now Judah was a, a subject of the Assyrians. And Ahaz, you know, leaders failing you. Ahaz, you should have stood strong, and he totally chickened out. I don't know, are you following all this? This is just like in other words, like this is what happens all the time, right? This is the nightly news. This nation gets that nation, and this leader cuts a deal, and it's just a mess. You're like, actually, that's how it that's my office. That's what's going on at work. Actually, this is our family Christmas gathering <laughs> for some of us. This is the human story. It just, you know, it happened then, it happens all the time. The, na- the places change, the names change. Sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's just in your homeroom. I mean, it- it's always the same junk. It's the human condition, it's the contradiction of Christmas. You can just leave the slide up there. I'll use it again in a minute. Anyway, that's the context. When this prophecy is given, darkness, gloom, oppression, evil, failure leaders chickening out, nobody trusting God. And so this prophecy comes in chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Those are remarkable words. No more gloom. No more. God is going to, to, to save them from this trauma, this, all these terrible things that were happening and then you have, in these verses, verses 1 to 5, you have a description of what that salvation is going to look like. In, in verses 1 to 5, you have uh, four reversals. There are four reversals that God is going to do in this prophecy. God's like, it's like this now, but I'm going to make it like that. And he's going to reverse the bad situation to a good situation. So, so that's what this prophecy is. It's, it's a prophecy given to an oppressed, beaten down, killed, slaughtered, uh, hopeless people. Who, who have come under God's judgment. I mean, that's why the Assyrians came, is because the Israelites had disobeyed God and had worshipped idols. And God told them, you guys had got to start worshipping me instead of idols or I'm going to take you out. And they didn't listen, and so God took them out. It was judgment on their sin. But now God is sending a word of hope and salvation for reversals. Here's the first reversal. It's in verse 1. It's a reversal from being humbled to being honored. Look at verse 1. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea along the Jordan. So do you notice there's five place names there? Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, way of the sea along the Jordan. All those place names are different locations right here in the part of Israel that got gobbled up by the Assyrian monster. So, so all of those are like, you know, it's like Galilee, the way of the sea is a, 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 a road, um, Zebulon, Naphtali, the different uh, Israelite um, tribes that were there. So, all of, so in other words, he's naming places that, uh, that just got destroyed. And he's saying, in the past you were humbled. Israel had turned away from God, so God brought them low and humbled them. Have you ever been humbled in a public way? everyone kind of knew it. It's really hard. I remember one of the first memories I have of being kind of publicly humbled or humiliated is when I uh, was in sixth grade and I tried out for the junior high basketball team. I wasn't um, good. Uh, I I enjoyed basketball, but I wasn't that great at it. I was pretty small in junior high. And uh, so I tried out for the team and there was two other guys who weren't good There was Todd and Jason. So Jason, Todd, and I were trying out. And at the end of the tryouts, the the coach pulled the three of us aside. I could still visualize where I was in the gym. He sat us down on a bench. And he said, okay, look, here's the deal. You can be on the team. But you can have a uniform, come to practice, you're on the team, you can go to the games. You just need to know you'll probably never play a minute. (laughs) Unless we're really far ahead and there's like one minute left and you can't blow it, I might put you in. He says... He goes, so if you want to be on the team, it's your choice. And we're like, well, that sounds like a good deal. I mean, (laughs) so we all joined the team. Because, you know, in junior high, the the desire to belong to something socially is stronger than your own self-respect. So uh, (laughs) some of us never outgrow that, right? So uh, yeah, so it was so it's it's like you know I was on the team I had the jersey I went to the practices and I got better at basketball I mean that's a good thing I learned how to play basketball even though I was terrible compared to the other guys, but uh, but it was humiliating everyone knew we were the bench riders everyone knew we weren't good everyone knew I mean it's like it was so it was public it's humiliating and I look back on that I'm like ah you know it, it's hard being humbled have you ever been humbled have you ever, you know, been the person who, you know, you lost the the job or you didn't get the job interview and you just feel like, ah, oh, what's wrong? My career is not going anywhere and everyone else seems to be. And you, you feel humiliated, even though people say, like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, you feel that way. Or, you know, you, you're the one with the kids who are bananas. And everyone else's kids seem great. And yours are just, like, crazy. And you're like, everyone's looking at me like I'm a terrible parent and they're all judging me. Um, you know, or, or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's humiliation because of sins, sinful choices we make, you know? You get the DUI, and it's in the paper, or whatever, and you're humiliated because of choices you made. Have you ever felt like you bear the scarlet letter on your chest, you know, the, like the A for adultery from the book, Nathaniel Hawthorne novel? Maybe for you it's like A for addict. And you think that's how people think of me, or, or D for divorced, or C, I have a criminal record, or whatever. And people maybe don't even know your history, but you just like you walk into a church like this and you're, you're just kinda, you know, you don't want people to to know who you are because it's it's humiliating some of the things we've done in our lives and the, the sinful paths we've gone down and the, the consequences that have happened. And we're humbled. We're humbled because of our own choices. But our God can not only humble, but our God can honor. And he can lift up the humbled. He can lift up those who are disgraced. Humble yourself before the Lord. He can lift you up. And God says to Israel, who had no right to expect to be honored, that they had blown this, they had brought this upon themselves, God says, yes, I've humbled you in the past, But there's coming a day when I'm going to honor you. I'm going to clothe you with honor and glory again. From humiliation to honor. Here's the second reversal, verse 2. From darkness to light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness is a great image. You know, it's a very biblical image. It's an image you find outside of the Bible. It's just like like all humans get the imagery of light and dark. You know, dark is scary, dark is bad, dark is death, dark is lost, dark is hopelessness and despair and discouragement and depression. That's what darkness, it just connotes war and and not good things happening, lost in the dark, cold in the dark. It's interesting how at Christmas sometimes when we celebrate the light, how the darkness in our lives can feel stronger. You know, maybe you've gone through the darkness of grief at losing somebody, and at Christmas, it seems like a darkness is heavier. Or if you're, if you're depressed or just struggling with being stressed out and freaking out and at Christmas, it, instead of being like, oh, it's Christmas, I can let that go. It's like, oh, heavier. You know, the clouds get heavier. Or the darkness of, of loneliness gets heavier. The things that are discouraging you, it just, it, just the weight grows. And here the Lord says, you're going to see a great light. I'm going to shine a light on you. There will be a light bursting in your darkness like those angels appearing to the shepherds. Suddenly a light from heaven. Or here's the third one. So from humiliation to honor, from darkness to light, from sadness to joy. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased the joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice while dividing the plunder. So the sad, broken people who've cried themselves till they can't cry anymore and weeped and mourned over the devastation of their people and their land, God says, I'm going to fill you with joy. It's going to be like harvest time joy. You know, when everything's gathered in and everyone's there together and you're celebrating. You know, uh, Thursday morning, there's going to be harvest time joy all over the South Shore as children harvest presents from under the tree. Their parents have worked all year, and now the harvest will come, and kids will harvest and reap and you know tear and presents, and there'll be food, and it'll be happy. It'll, it, you know that, that kind of joy, the happiness of, of rest and completion. And God says, "I'm going to give that to these people whose hearts are broken. They don't deserve it. It's grace. This prophecy comes out of God's grace, not out of our deserving. but from humiliation to honor, darkness, light sadness to joy, and then the last reversal in verses 4 and 5, from war to peace. Verse 5 is amazing. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. God is going to burn up the implements of war, which is another way of saying peace. He's going to bring peace on earth. I mean, world peace. Talk about something, Christmas is hard to believe in. Can you imagine believing in world peace? There's been an idea that human beings kick around sometimes. You know, what if we lived in a world where we didn't need armies and weapons? And there's a few people who kind of believe in that, you know, peacenik types, and they have the end war bumper stickers, you know, on their Prius, and they're, they're, they still believe, they're still, you know, fighting for utopia. But world peace, I mean, isn't that like something that, Miss America pageant contestants say, like, if you become Miss America, what will you use your platform for? I will fight for world peace. Like, really? (laughs) Those of us who are realists, those of us who live with our feet planted on the ground, we know that the only way to peace in this broken world is you've got to carry a big stick. You've got to have an army if you don't want to be invaded. Because if you say, we're going to go for peace, and you pull your armies and your weapons back, then you'll get invaded. That's how it is in this world. You've got to defend yourself, and so it's hard to even imagine a world where, where the weapons of war would have no use, where we would burn the boots in, from battle, where we would recycle the tanks and the, the jets and the bombs, and I don't know, make something else out of them—Christmas ornaments. You know? Can you imagine that world? I mean, it's like, wow, okay, that, that's what you're talking about, God, is this end to war, this, this ending of oppression, this, this ending of the violence in the world. How, how's God going to do that? I mean, this is a huge prophecy. Like, when you really think about what God's promising here, he's promising a fix to, to, to what's wrong with the world in, in so many ways that this gonna, he's going to reverse the experience, not just of his people in Israel. But, but really, it's it, it sort of by the end here in verse 5, it starts taking on a larger kind of global dimension to it. It's a big promise that God is giving here, and it's only going to get bigger in the next few verses. How is God going to do that? How, how could God possibly fix this world? Um, if God were to come to you and say, look, I'm looking for ideas on how to fix the world. What do you got? What do you got? You know, just looking for ideas. I mean, how would you fix it? I I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, probably the best fix would be uh, delete and start over. <laughs> like, you know, sin and brokenness. It's not just at a political level. It's like it's at every level of society. It's in it's in our relationships. I look in my own heart. And I see the ill will and the pride and the selfishness and the arrogance. I realize that the reason the world is sinful and broken is because I'm sinful and broken. It's not coming out of thin air. It's coming out of us. And so there's there's brokenness in the world. And so maybe that's what God needs to do is just delete the whole thing. You know, maybe the world's like a a Better Homes and Gardens house that looks beautiful on the outside, but behind the walls, it's been infected with black mold, and at some point, the house is so riddled with mold that you just got to bulldoze the thing and start over. Maybe that's what God needs to do. Well, that's one option, I suppose. But thank God, God has a different plan. I probably wouldn't have thought of this one. Here's God's plan for fixing the world. His plan is to give us a present. And that present is a baby boy. That's the plan. Baby boy. Fixing the universe, baby boy. It's interesting. Look at verse 6. So verses 1 to 5 is what God is going to do, and verses 6 and 7 is how he's going to get it done. Verse 6 For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. God is going to give a, a son, a boy child, to the world. This is God's plan. Now, let those words sit with you for a minute, because we're probably maybe a little too familiar with them, at least those of us who are kind of church-going types. you Maybe you've heard these words sung in Handel's Messiah, or maybe you got a Christmas card in the mail this year that said, you know, to us a son is born, and we're all familiar with that language. But... But... Think about it. This is God's plan. A child, a son being born. Like, really? That's the plan? Because, you know, God, you're probably aware of this. I probably don't need to tell you this, but there's a lot of sons who've been born and a lot of daughters. And the world is just the same as it ever was. In fact, have you ever hung out with babies? You know, they're great and they're cute, and then they become toddlers. And uh, I don't know how anyone can't believe in the doctrine of original sin just hang out with a toddler, right? You don't have to teach toddlers how to be nasty. You don't have to teach them how to steal or to take or to push or hit or bite. They just know how to do this. It it just comes out of them. You know, the sin nature is there. You have to teach little kids how to be nice and how to share and how to realize they're not the only, you know, creature in the universe. And you have to teach them these things. They they don't get that. And kids who aren't taught that grow up to be adults who are narcissists, you know, so... This is just our nature. It has to be corrected. It's within us. So, so God, your, your plan is another kid. Because Frankly, we have a lot of them, and we're still in the same problem. And all these little kids we're having grew up to be adults like us who caused the same problems. So, what's the solution? A baby? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but this isn't just any baby. <laughs> this baby's special. This baby will be a ruler. Look at the next line. The government will be on his shoulders. Ah, a ruler. So this isn't just any baby. This baby will be like have authority to do things. And again, we say, oh, okay, God. But you know, there's been other babies that have grown up to be rulers. And frankly, it hasn't turned out great either. How many times have we heard about a new ruler? Hey, church is getting a new pastor. Hey, elementary school is getting a new principal. Heard we're getting a new CEO at work. Wow, we've got a new Senate coming. There'll be a new president in 2016. And and we get our hopes up every time for a new leader. We're like, maybe this, maybe this will be it. Maybe this will be, you know, the the kind of messianic arrival that we've been looking for. But instead of messianic, it's just kind of messy. And uh, we get a new leader, and there's some good things about the new leader, perhaps, but then there's all these other problems. And we're disappointed again and again as we look to leaders So when God says that he's sending a a kid who's going to become a leader, we kind of say, well, okay, we have that too, and it's still not fixed. Ah, but this isn't just any kid, and it's not just any leader. This leader will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Hebrew thought, when you name somebody something, you're often doing more than just giving them a cute name. You are, you're, you're describing their essence and their identity. So, so when names are assigned or reassigned in Hebrew culture, you're not just saying, well, we kind of like the sound of this name. You're saying, this is who you are. This is your very nature. So when Abram, which means great father, became Abraham, which meant father of many nations. He was being renamed because his destiny and identity was being changed by God. So so the name pointed to his very essence. So when we're told this child's name, it's not just a catchy name. We're being told who this child is. And the amazing thing is we're being told this child, this baby, who as we see in verse seven, is gonna be descended from King David's uh, lineage, this baby will be God. God. Look, he's look at his four names. Name number one, wonderful counselor. Now, wonderful counselor doesn't mean, like, really good therapist, right? Oh, I got a wonderful counselor. I'll give her your number, give her your number. You know, it's not, that's not what it means. The, wonderful is, is the word, it's the Hebrew word that means miracle or wonder. You know, it's, it's the miracles of God, the, the amazing things God does that are supernatural. So this is someone who, who's a, a miracle worker, a miracle counselor, some, something like It's kind of a little bit hard to translate, but that's sort of the idea. In other words, it's someone who does the works of God, who has divine power. And then look at the second name, Mighty God. Could you imagine naming your kid Mighty God? I, even if you're really religious, Mighty God. This is my kid. This is God. Like, what? You don't name your kid. I mean, there's some dumb names for kids, but don't call your kid God. Mighty God. No. This is Everlasting Father. Think of that name, these are divine titles. The prince of Shalom, the the, the prince who brings Shalom to the earth. Only God can do that. This is a divine name, this is a divine person. So 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, we have a prophecy, about the birth of a son who will come from the lineage of David who will be God. That's amazing. I think there's this kind of theory out there, maybe you've heard this, this reconstruction, where... Where this idea that Jesus being God was something that kind of evolved after the time of Jesus, like there was Jesus and he had followers, and his followers had followers, and then those the legend grew and the myth grew until it eventually became this big myth. And you know, hundreds of years after Jesus, there are some guys sitting around in a church committee meeting who said, "All right, all in favor of thinking Jesus is God, say aye, aye. those opposed? Nay, nay. Okay, burn him at the stake. All right, Jesus is God. Like, and, like that's how it happened." It's not how it happened. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah is saying, he's mighty God, he's everlasting father. And he's the descendant of King David. It's it's remarkable, it's remarkable. And then verse seven, he's eternal. If, If that wasn't convincing enough, look at how he's actually gonna carry out his rule He's never going to stop ruling. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Because he's going to keep living. He's, his government, his rule is going to be eternal. He will reign over David's, on David's throne, over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Ah, that's what we need in this world, justice and righteousness. How long? From that time on and forever. This is going to be an eternal reign of this one baby king God. It's, it's, it's This is an amazing passage. You know, that's the problem with leaders, it's, it's even good leaders. Like, every once in a while, you do get a good leader. Not perfect, but you know, you can have a good pastor in your church, or you can have a good CEO, or a good principal, or a good president. There's a problem, though. They always die. You know, and you're like, ah, oh, he died. He was good. And history is replete with examples of a, of a good leader dying, followed immediately by a really lousy leader who mucks up everything the good leader did. Now, that has happened umpteen times in human history. What we need is a perfect leader who doesn't die. And that's what God says he's bringing. His son, the divine son descended from David, who will reign forever and ever. i like, wow, that's cool. How do you know this is going to happen? Here's why, last sentence, maybe my favorite sentence in this passage. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's zeal is behind this. Isn't that a cool idea? I love the word zeal. Like someone who has zeal, they're all in, they don't care, whatever it takes. You know, there's people watching the Patriots game and then there's the guy you know, with the beer belly and no shirt, whose belly is painted, and he was like, come on, Patriots! And he's screaming, and you know, like, ooh, that guy's zealous for the Patriots. <laughs> he is all in, no shame, everything behind it. What is it like when God becomes zealous for something? Where God is saying, all of my power All of my attention, all of my mind, and my wisdom will be applied to accomplish this. I will bring the Savior's Son. I'm bringing all of my divine wisdom and omnipotence to bring this to pass this prophecy. He will be born, He will rule, He will be God in the flesh. This is awesome. God has zealous for this. And God has done this. And God is doing this today. This prophecy has come true in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son born to us. He is the king. He's a descendant of David. And he is this divine human, which is hard to even understand. I don't understand it. It's beyond me. But that's who he is. Look with me at the book of Matthew. Chapter 1. It's on page uh, 955 in your pew Bible. Just look at Matthew real quick. Matthew 1. I totally wish we had like another hour and a half to, to just go through Matthew. Go ahead. Thank you. Oh, I have permission. <laughs> All in favor? Yeah. <laughs> I think I needed something a little more than that. Okay. Yeah. All right, so book of Matthew the book of Matthew really capitalizes one of the themes in Matthew is all the ways that Jesus really is this prophesied descendant that from all over the Old Testament talking about him and here he is but let me just point out like, super fast three examples, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham, sometimes we don't know what those genealogies, they're really important because the prophecy was that a descendant from David would come and so he's going to show us who he is. Well, here's the second one. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So she's pregnant, but she's not pregnant because she uh, you know, was with another man. She, she's pregnant because a supernatural thing happened. The Holy Spirit somehow caused this child to be within her. Sometimes we read that and we say, "Uh, can that really happen? Is the virgin birth really real? Do you have to believe that to buy into Christianity? Yeah. (laughs) Because if there's not this miraculous virgin birth, the thing inside Mary is not going to be the person from Isaiah 9. It's not going to be God. It's just going to be another one of us made from a man and woman, and we know how that turns out. We're messes. We we need we we need something coming in. The system is broken, and the solution can't come from just doing more inside the system. Something has to come from the outside of the system, and and bring an an invasion into the system. Otherwise, it's just part of the broken system. So the Holy Spirit had to come in and do something that it's a miracle. They say, "Well, explain the Virgin Birth." I can't because I don't understand a miracle. If it was if you know if I could explain it, it would just be science. This is a miracle. God has done something by his divine power and he's caused this child to be born. Of course, Joseph, her husband, is a righteous man. You know the story. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, son of David, even the father is not the father, he's a descendant of David. He's going to be in David's household. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him a birth to a son, to us a child is born, and you will be given give him the name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. This is how Jesus is going to fix the world. Not by imposing a kingdom from the top down right away, because if he did that, it, it wouldn't fix anything, because we'd still be messed up. You know, Jesus could have come and kicked out the Romans and said, new kingdom, but then all the people in the kingdom would be a mess. Instead, God's plan for fixing the world starts from the bottom up. He's going to deal with each of our hearts to forgive our sins. Because if my heart isn't fixed, and you take me, a sinful Jeremy, and you put me in the kingdom of God, I'm just going to make a mess of it again. I need to be renovated. I need to be forgiven. I need to be changed. And so Jesus came to do the grassroots thing first before he brought the big kingdom, which was to save us from our sins, to save his people from their sins. Or look at Matthew chapter four. Last one. Matthew chapter four, verse 13. This is like 30 years later after Jesus was born. And he's uh, now beginning his public ministry. He's now starting to do his miracles and teaching and all that. He's just been baptized. And so leaving Nazareth, that's where he grew up, verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow of death, a light has dawned. The light is Jesus himself. And he went to Capernaum, which is right here. So Jesus begins his public ministry in that part of the land of Israel that got squashed by the Assyrians but was given the prophecy. And that's where Jesus begins his teaching and miracles and feeding the 5,000 and all that jazz that he did. It was amazing. And so now the prophecy is fulfilled. And from that time on, verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent. Look, I'm coming to save you from your sins. I'm coming to make you forgiven people who can be in this kingdom. But to do that, you've got to repent. You've got to say, I've not been living God's way. God's right. I'm wrong. I need to to turn to Christ and put my faith in him. Repent because what? The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom. This is Isaiah 9. The kingdom is coming. But if you want to part in the kingdom, you've got to be a citizen. And that comes by repenting and putting your faith in Christ. If We could go on and on in Matthew. But that's how God's kingdom is growing today. You know, we look at the contradiction of Christmas. and We see this beautiful time of year. and Then we see all the terror and horrible things in the world. And we say, is it real? Is God really doing something? Yes. He's just not doing it the way that we demand that he does it. He didn't bring in a big top-down kingdom right away. Instead, he's saving people one at a time. It's not like a big supernova exploding over the world. It's more like candles coming on one at a time in the world. That's how the kingdom's growing today. Or, Or to put it another way, the kingdom is growing today through the gospel. And as the gospel message spreads, as Sinful person after sinful person hears the news that God has sent Jesus to die for sins and rise again, and if you put your faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven, and the light comes on, and then that light over time grows brighter as, as you follow Christ more and as you obey him more, the light grows in your soul, and so, so these little candles that are growing brighter, that's what the kingdom of God looks like now. Not some big supernova in the sky, but, but a darkness with candles coming on. And it's growing. And it will continue to grow until all God's people have been brought in. And then Christ will return. And then you'll see the supernova on that day. Then you'll see the kingdom of glory. But you'll also see citizens who've been prepared for that kingdom. If the kingdom just came right away, no one would be worthy. But Christ is is making people worthy through his death on the cross. He bore our sin and our disgrace and our dishonor so that we can be honored through salvation. And then on that day, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Are you ready for that day? Is your soul ready? Have you pressed deep into Christmas? Have you yourself repented and put your faith in Christ? Don't stay at the superficial level because this is the destiny of the universe. This is what God is doing. And now is the time to believe. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of silence here and if you... If you've never put your faith in Christ, I would just invite you to take a moment to pray silently. And, you know, if you need words to say, you can say something like, Have mercy on me, Jesus. I'm a sinner and I need you. Heavenly Father, I pray for us to just see Jesus more clearly. We thank you, Jesus, that you really are the son, the descendant of David. You are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You are the light in the darkness. Lord, we love you and we worship you, Jesus. And I, I pray even for brothers and sisters here who do love you that the light will grow brighter in our hearts. Oh God, search out our hearts this Christmas. See if there be anything in us that is still of the darkness, Lord. Root it out. Purify us. Help us to shine more brightly as a church. Oh God, give us the gospel. Put it on our mouths. Help us to believe it. To believe that this really is the only hope for mankind. Because nothing else can do it. Lord, I just pray, make us bold with the gospel. Help us to say a little bit more than we normally would say. God, we pray for friends who are coming to Christmas Eve services that you would Cause your light to shine in their hearts as well. Oh God, draw us closer to yourself, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name.